Good morning. In case you missed it, we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, we're going to try to do um, announcements at the beginning of the service. So if you came in late and missed the announcement, it's, we didn't forget. We're just trying to change up the order a little bit. Um, let's uh, pause for a moment of prayer. Father, we want to thank you once again that we can come before you, not on our own merit, but by the merit of your son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us, who bled that we might be forgiven, who lived in righteousness that we might be credited, counted holy um, because of his good works. Father, we are known as people of the book, and may that be true of us today as we look into the text and as we determine truth based on not we, what we prefer or what we feel or what is told to us by our society, but by what you have clearly said in your word. And as we explore this, I pray that you would give us grace, give us understanding, and ultimately change us. And now, Lord, we turn to you, to your word, and we invite you to speak to us as we, your sons and your daughters, will give our careful attention to you. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. There's an old saying, a cliche, an idiom, it's called ride the tiger. Maybe you've heard of it. It, it means to engage in something that's uh, risky or precarious or dangerous. But the problem is that once you get involved in it, it's hard to stop. It's hard to, to discontinue that particular activity. It comes from an ancient Chinese proverb that he who rides the tiger is afraid to dismount. Of course, it is the theoretically possible to ride a tiger. You know, a big tiger can be 600 plus pounds. So you, you can ride a tiger, although their backs aren't structured to carry the weight. Um, still, if you were to ride a tiger, it would be very dangerous, even if it were a trained tiger. There once was a lady from Niger who smiled as she rode on a tiger. They came back from the ride with the lady inside and a smile on the face of the tiger. <laughs> Actually, I was looking it up this week. There is a picture on the internet of a lady riding a tiger. You remember the Netflix movie um, Tiger King? So there's a picture of what appears to be the young Sharon Baskin riding on the back of this tiger. She, of course, was the arch enemy of uh, Joe Exotic. Joe Exotic had a tiger place in Oklahoma, and um, Karen Baskin had one in, in uh, Florida someplace. Yeah, Karen Baskin became kind of the the subject and uh, the ongoing interest in an unsolved murder case, because it appears that her husband, Don Lewis, had threatened to leave her and take his $5 million with him, and he suddenly disappeared. Of course, nothing ever came up that would convict Karen Baskin, but law enforcement, though they were never able to solve the problem, um, believes Sharon Baskin murdered her husband, and prosecuting attorney uh, Alex Spiro says she was murder that he was murdered by Sharon Baskin ground up in a meat grinder and fed to the tiger. So apparently tigers are not safe creatures to hang around. By the way, that was August 18th, 1997, exactly 25 years ago. Yeah. When we reject God's commands, um, we initially feel quite liberated from God's oppressive demands on our life. We feel that we're the captain of our own fate. We're in control. We have this new sense of mastery of our life. It's exciting. But the fact is that when we reject God's rule over our life, we are, in fact, riding the tiger. The tiger, 
our sin seems to carry us along. It seems to make us feel, at least for a while, that though it's dangerous, we're the master of our fate. But the problem is that sin is a, has a very terrible power, and it initially renders us blind or ignorant to the danger, and we become utterly insensitive to its destructive harm. When man chooses to reject God and serve himself and worship other things, himself or other things other than God, God will punish him by allowing him to go his way. God will punish him through the, the progressive, um, intensifying, contagious effect of his rebellion. When you reject God, when you worship the creature, you are riding the tiger. Take your Bibles and turn with me where we left off last week to Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. While you're looking there, we, you know, we kind of back up about where we have been in Romans 1, verse 18. We talked about the righteousness of God. It says, the righteousness of God is being revealed from heaven against ungodliness. And so Paul hastens to add that God is currently revealing himself. He is currently judging. He is currently causing his wrath to come out against sin. Everywhere man turns, the scriptures told us, we see God. We see his power. We see his majesty, his holiness, his sovereignty. And so that every man, even those who have not heard about Jesus, every man rejecting God is condemned for his rejection of the God that he knows. God has revealed himself, verse 20, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. So this wrath from heaven, verse 18, that is being revealed against ungodliness and righteousness against men who are suppressing the truth. The unbelieving man has this three-pronged rebellion against God. First, he doesn't or he first says that he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. The second is that he does not honor God as God. And third, he is not thankful for what God has done. And all of this leads him to exchange the glory of God for something lesser than God, for some creature, for some idol. He ultimately rejects the, the eternal glory for something which represents a fleeting glory. But the question before us then is, well, does man just go free? Um, the evidences of God's morality abound in, in nature and in the human conscience. Man intuitively knows he is aware of God. He knows that there is a creature. He, he, he knows that he is a creature, and he knows there is a creator, and that that creature is not God. But man rebels against God. But can man continue to rebel? against God and reject him with impunity. And we know that there is a God, we know something about that God, and yet we refuse to acknowledge him, and instead we invent all kinds of things to worship instead. Isn't it odd that there's an interesting connection between idolatry and immorality? And the connection is this, that when you won't accept the truth, when you refuse to embrace the truth, you create a truth. And when you when you reject the truth of God, you embrace something else. It, it becomes a, 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 an expression of, of a immorality, and I'll get back into this in a minute. The point before us now is that, is that we have been told that God's wrath is being revealed against the sins of mankind. And so we have before us today in the passage, Paul repeats this interesting phrase three times, that God 
gives them over, or God has given them over, God gave them over. We see that in 24, verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. And so we see the unrestrained, um, we see that unrestrained sin is really an evidence of God's judgment against man. I mean, we know that there's a judgment day. We know that there's a future day of accountability in which all sin will have to, everyone who sinned will have to give an accounting for it. But that's not what this text is talking about. It's talking about a present, active judgment of God against sinful man. You know, Paul's been preaching the good news of Christ against this bad news of the fact that because of sin, man is condemned. The good news only makes sense since that in, in light of or in contrast to the bad news that because of our sin, we stand condemned. But one might think that he sins with impunity, that we can just simply choose to reject God and live life as we want to. After all, we all have our own free will. What's it to God if he's given us a free will to choose not him? Yet he does hold us accountable because the problem is sin kills. It is destructive. It's harmful. Some, you just can't sin thinking that going your own way is going to create this situation of lasting happiness. You can't sin without suffering the consequences of sin. And that takes us to our, our text today in Romans 1.24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Remember again, the context here, back to verse 18, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven. Up to this point, though, we haven't actually seen anything that specifically looks like God's action of his wrath against man or against, against sin. We haven't actually seen that God has actually done anything yet. And now we're told that in, in three times in succession, we're told that the action that God takes is that he abandons us to our sin. God gave them over to their sin. And here's the irony. You know, isn't that what we wanted all along anyway? I mean, clear back to the first sin in the Garden of Eden. Wasn't what we wanted for God to leave us alone? Stop telling me what to do. Stop trying to rule over me. You know, we want to get rid of God. We want to push him out of our life. And we, we say it today. Don't tell me what to do. Just leave me alone. Let me decide for myself how I want to live my life. Back off. And you know what? God's action is that he does. He does leave us alone. I mean, like the, it's like the story in Luke, uh, what is it, Luke 14 about the prodigal son? No, it's after that. Anyway, you know, the prodigal son. <laughs> the story is that here's, here's this father who has who has caring for his son, and the son has a rebellious heart. He doesn't want the supervision of the father. He feels oppressed by the father. He wants to cut loose, make his own way. He wants to have joy in his life. He wants, and his father lets him. His father permits him to go and take his possessions and go to the far country. Isn't that what we want? We want God to give us our own way. Let us go. Let us do our own thing. Is it a surprise then when his judgment is, when he says, okay, Go your own way. See where that takes you. And we tend to think of God as this miser of happiness. He gives us all these oppressive rules because he wants to keep us from, from being joyful in life. What we want is we want to be wild and free and live life like we want to be. The problem is it doesn't work that way. And we find that 
when we pursue life apart from the way that God tells us to live, we find instead that we experience misery. Instead of freedom, we find this debilitating bondage to sin. We find ourselves riding the tiger and no way off. Chrysostom said that God permits them to continue in and indeed plunge more deeply into the sin they had already chosen. Godet, a few hundred years later, wrote, God ceased to hold the boat as it was dragged by the current of the river. But what I'm telling you is God doesn't just simply let go of the boat in the current of the river. God pushes it away and shoves it downstream. You want to experience where your sin leads by all means. Try it and find out. But having said that, let me also quickly add, when, when the text here says God gave them up, it doesn't mean that God simply washes his hands of them and says, I'm done with you. I have no further interest in you. Because as long as there is life, God continually hopes that this judgment results in man he hearing and being healed from his sin. He, he wants to alert men to, his dan to this danger so that men will turn from their sin. The, the purpose of the punishment is to heal, not to destroy. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up. There it is again. God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that were contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Now, that Paul should mention this immorality right up front, this sexual sin first, is really not an accident because, like I said, idolatry and immorality go hand in hand. The sexual, the, the sexual life of men or even of a society, a group of people, a nation, has always been the index of its morality. And that's one of the grand heresies of our Western culture, and that is that you can be good while, you be, while you're sexually licentious. That, that's never been true. You can't remain good and sexually immoral at the same time. It never has been true. It is not true now. It never will be true. And again, the connection between immorality and idolatry is that when you... Uh, when you won't conform your behavior to the truth, you will conform the truth to your behavior. There's always this inseparable connection. It's not just simply um, an odd thing. I, I, idolatry is immorality lived out, and immorality is idolatry lived out. We either conform our desires to truth, or we will conform the truth to our desires. Daniel Torriani wrote, today utilitarians call an act good if it increases pleasure or reduces suffering without impeding the freedom or pleasure of others since no one has the right to gain pleasure at the expense of another. As a result, most deny the external law offers an objective basis for dis disapproving consensual acts between two informed adults unless there's a power differential between them. And of course, we have a lot of churches today, gay churches, where the pastor tells us, you have misunderstood what God has to say about homosexuality. You have misunderstood what God intends. Is that so? Have we just simply misunderstood God's intention about homosexuality? 
let's look first to Leviticus 18:22 and see if it's perhaps ambiguous. You shall not lie with a male as, a, as with a woman. It's an abomination. But the word abomination is seldom used in connection with sin because it's reserved for particularly grave sins like uh, human sacrifice. Is that an ambiguous statement? Now, Paul realizes that he's, 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 he's not living in some religious vacuum tube. You know, he realizes he's living in the, the Roman world, which is much like our world, very rife with immorality. Uh, he, he's very much aware that there's this lust for rebellion of God and ex that lust being expressed in, in human sexuality. He tells us right up front that the women exchange natural relationships for those that were contrary to nature. Now, Romans 1 that we're studying, um, it contributes to this unified biblical teaching that runs all the way from Genesis 1, Genesis chapter 2, Genesis 19, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, uh, Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19, Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1, uh, Jude chapter 7, all say that human sexuality is meant to be confined to the relationship between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And there's no exception to that anywhere in the scripture. And yet we've had decades of debate within the church about what God could have possibly meant. We have this debate about how homosexuality fits into God's intention for human beings. Roman 1 calls homosexuality shameful, unnatural, and self-punishing. And any honest, critical scholar is going to have to candidly admit that's what the Bible teaches. That's what Scripture says. But you're left with the conclusion, if that's what Scripture says, and yet I'm determined to accept homosexuality, then Scripture must be wrong. Luke Johnson remarks, I have little patience with the efforts to make Scripture say something other than what it says through appeals to linguistic or cultural subtleties. The exegetical situation is straightforward. We know what the text says, but what are we to do with what the text says? I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience of thousands of others who have witnessed to this, which tells us that to claim our own sexual orientation is, in fact, to accept the way in which God has created us. By so doing, we explicitly reject as well the premise that the Scripture statements condemning homosexuality. You know, ultimately, you run into this all the time. As someone who embraces homosexuality and wants to consider themselves a follower of God, a Christian, they're left with one of two alternatives. The first alternative is, well, obviously that's what the Scripture says, but the Scripture is just one text among many. Or, and this is the one you hear most often, obviously that's what the Scripture says, but the principle of love certainly trumps any specific Bible teaching on sexual ethics. I mean, there's no question about what God says in His Word. Homosexuality is a sin. 
It violates God's command and God intends to judge it. The question for us then is, well, that's what the Scripture says. What does the church say? What do we as a church say about it? Well, first, what we need to do is speak quite plainly that, the, that Paul here speaks of homosexual as being an, an egregious example of godlessness. It's, it's a hot issue in our generation, but judgment begins in the house of God, and we need to speak quite candidly, first of all, that homosexuality is a sin, but we also need to recognize the sins that we commit are far more egregious. Homosexuality is not the worst sin. And every discussion about sin needs, us, needs to lead us to declare God's love for the sinner and his desire to extend his mercy that the sinner would repent and be saved. God loves his enemies. He loves sinners, including sexual sinners. In the gospel, Jesus tends to single out these physical sins for the object of his grace, and he tends to criticize quite harshly the sins of the arrogance and smugness of the Pharisees. Now, I'm very much aware most of us have friends or family who are homosexuals. I realize that. And you don't want to judge them or criticize them or condemn them. I'm very much aware I have friends who are single men who have never been attracted to women. I realize that's, that's true. I'm well aware that we live in a time and in a society that increasingly endorses and we are at the verge where it forcefully endorse and approves homosexuality. I'm well aware that in certain settings, anything you say against homosexuality is will be dismissed as, as hate speech or irrational animus against sexual minorities. We, we get that. And there is a time to be silent and courteous. You don't have to shoot off your mouth and your, your particular agenda every time somebody brings it up. Many times, Jesus was silent. He didn't have to bark every time somebody opposed him. My concern, however, is that church members are being shaped more by contemporary thought and personal experiences than they are about what the Scripture says. Really, the bottom line has to be, what does God say on this subject? Not, how do you feel about it? We are presented in our culture um, that people have rights, including the right to their sexual preferences, and we need to extend the right to sexual mi minorities and the right for someone to be who they are and what they are. And we are told that you have no right to say they don't have that right. Let's get down to it. When somebody has a particularly strong inclination towards sin, whatever the sin, deep inside, we almost always say, it's my right to sin. Though we don't say sin. We say, it's my right. I'm simply exercising my right. What we're really talking about is that somebody has determined to do what he wants, whether or not God approves of it. And so he inwardly argues that this is his right. He's the captain of his own fate. He will not be denied by Christian ethics, biblical teaching, or the knowledge of God. But 
let's not focus on homosexuality as the most heinous sin here and ignore that there are worse sins than homosexuality. And I mean specifically the sins of arrogance, smugness, and pride. C.S. Lewis said, if anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he's quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual, the pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasure of power and hatred. For there are two things inside me which the human, inside me competing with the human self which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. And the diabolical self is the worst of the two. That's why a cold, self-righteous prig who regularly goes to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it's better to be neither. So why then, if, if homosexuality is not the worst sin, why are we even talking about it? Why does Paul make this, this issue here about homosexuality? And their answer is because it is the most obvious sin because it is unnatural and everyone knows it. It doesn't make it the worst sin. Remember, Jesus criticized the Pharisees who rejected the Messiah, and he told them they were committing a far worse sin than those of Sodom and Gomorrah. I rest my case. Still, homosexuality is another step away from the plumb line, and we're all aware of that. It, 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 no matter what the sin, the rebellion against God's law, there, there's a cost, there's a penalty, there is a, there, there's a downside, a dark side inherent to every sin. In his book, Straight and Narrow, Tom Schmidt gives the following statistical analysis among homosexual men. You'll find the following. Four out of ten are currently in a relationship, but only one of these is faithful to his partner. Four out of ten have never had a relationship never had a relationship lasting more than a year. Only one has ever had a relationship lasting over three years. Six in 10 are regularly having sex with strangers. The group averages two partners per person per month. Three out of 10 are alcoholics. Five have a history of alcoholic abuse. Four out of 10 are heavily into drug abuse. Four out of 10 have suffered acute depression. Three of 10 have contemplated suicide. Eight out of 10 will experience some sort of sexually transmitted disease other than HIV. Three out of 10 have been exposed to HIV and one has AIDS. You know, there's a, there's a lot just on the human level which, would, which can be derived from, from, from these, uh, the, the cost of these causing us to reject homosexuality. Anyway, let's move on. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They were gossip, slanderers, hate of gods, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So in the, there's about 30 vice and virtue lists in the Bible, and Paul, just about every one of Paul's letter includes one of these lists. They're very common in ancient literature. We're not going to spend a lot of time here just simply because it doesn't require a lot of explanation. You know what these are, and you're guilty of most of them. 
So we won't spend a lot of time here, but just a few general comments. Then Paul says that they are full of, that is, they're dominated by envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Envy has a central place on this list because when we're envious, we, we're not glad for somebody else's blessings. We, we, we don't want them to have blessings. In fact, it gives us pain that God would choose to bless somebody else instead of, um, instead of happiness about it. Paul mentions gossips and slanderer. A gossip leans in to whisper what he says may be true. Um, it's intended to be some choice morsel, but the point is that he takes this information, this truth, where it should not go. Uh, unlike gossip, the slanderer has a different agenda. Again, it may be true or not. The point is that while the gossip is exchanging a tender morsel, the slanderer seems to be more interested in causing damage to the one that they're talking about. Uh, the common denominator in the next four sins is pride. Um, Paul names haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. See, the one thing they have in common is in each case, including disobedient to parents, the person that he's talking about does not want to be ruled by someone else. They don't want someone else to have authority over them. And then Paul finally writes, they're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Verse 32, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Here's the new word here that's being introduced to us, and that's the word approve here. These people not only do what is sinful and it encounters God's just penalty, they approve of what is evil. And so you see here this awful downhill spiral, this path to, to destruction, and that they actually approve what is evil. Remarkably, that's where we are as a society. Not very long ago, we were told we need to be tolerant of people's differences. We are way past being tolerant. Now you are, you are heinous hater if you don't approve and endorse homosexuality. And so here at the beginning, back in verse 24, Paul makes this series of three statements about God's judicial abandoning to sin, and uh, he says that these uh, judicial abandonment, judicial abandon, abandonment is not only evidence of the sin, but it's also evident of God's action of judgment. In other words, this is the expression that we were looking for in verse 18, that God's wrath is being spent. God is expressing His wrath this present tense. God is expressing His judgment and wrath by allowing them to go their way and allowing them to encounter the, the consequence of their behavior. And we see this happening to us as a nation, as a country. It's happening all around us. We see the judicial abandonment, God allowing us to go our own way, and we see the consequence of going our own way. Now, we see these evidences in our, in our country. We see this, this gross moral decline that our country has gone through since we have gotten rid of God in our public sector. We don't want God in our schools. We don't want God in the courts. We don't want God out in public. And God says, fine, have it your way. But I don't want to go there right now because I want to limit my discussion rather to this question here, my observations about sexual morals, since that's 
the context of this passage that we're looking at today. Now, many of you who were alive in the 60s might remember back the, the sexual revolution and how it promised that uh, it was going to be this, this movement of great altruism, that, that, uh, a selfless abandonment for the benefit of other people. It, it wasn't selfless. No one should imagine that a motto whose saying was, do your own thing, was ever having the, the, the welfare of the individual in mind. What, what we have is an institutionalizing of selfishness and a mainstreaming of vicious disregard for other people. We've managed to do this to ourselves in one generation. What an amazing accomplishment. And God helped us do it. He didn't just simply let go of the boat in the stream. He gave it a kick and pushed us down. We made our choice. And he said, I'll let you see what happens to that choice. The framers of the sexual revolution assured us that this was the path to peace and harmony, to self-fulfillment, to this, this gentle, loving relationships. And the carnage that has ensued from that point should surely have put that concept to rest as we see that people are more deeply selfish than they ever have before. And we left us wondering what horror awaits us now as God continues to give us over to more and more of our hedonism and narcissism, our selfish ways. The indulgence of sexual sins has led to this systemic and endemic sexual perversion. It's led to death of the family. It's led to this destruction and damage of unnumbered children. And if that's true about what's happened to our indulgence in sexual perversions, then what will this systematic sexual perversion ultimately lead to? Do any of you think that if you were to come back 50 years from now, following the course that we are on now, that you're going to find our country our society is going to be a happier, more just, more uh, peaceful, more loving society. As we act more and more like animals driven by our own appetite, and those in the elite of our group say, if you're going to act like animals, is there really any reason to not treat you like animals? Is there any difference between you and an animal? Clever people have always argued, they still argue today, that by indulging in our sins, whatever they are, that somehow it's going to make us more free, more liberated, more human. And the aftermath has been otherwise. We have teachers and counselors and mental health professionals, the therapeutic culture, always ready to give an excuse for any kind of misbehavior and tell you that's okay. Liberated people behave better. It's not true. Rather, it encourages us to be more selfish and more thoughtless and to blame others when we encounter the consequence for our misbehavior. And we live in a society very much like Paul did that in Paul's time in Rome that illustrates what will become of a society that indulges in this kind of sin, sins that everyone knows are wrong. And everyone knows that these behaviors are unworthy of God and man. But again, Paul's great point here is not that he's describing the, the downward descent to hell. He's not 
simply trying to de describe the progressive nature of human sin and how it gets worse over time. Paul's point here is that he's saying that this is God's manner of exacting judgment upon sin with the intention that people will wake up to the consequences and turn, that they can repent, that they can stop doing the evil and they can be freed from that. In reality, this God turning us over is a, in a way a, a way that God shows his respect to the free will that he has given his greatest creation. Choose what you want. Choose the way you will live your life. But he's hoping that the consequence will be that we, we turn and, and, and we're saved. You know, God expects us to understand that his purposes in judging and causing this in allowing this judicial abandonment is ultimately related to his purpose of grace and salvation. He expresses this, that men and women in this position would then sense their desperateness and turn to God. Because salvation is not just meant for the people who are well-meaning. It is meant ultimately for the desperate. And sin and the spiraling consequence of this sin make men and women desperate to acquire a righteousness that they, need, they neither have nor they can obtain on their own efforts. It's because of this principle of death and that God will not allow man to, to thrive and to prosper and to be happy while they're in rebellion against him. And we have his justice to thank for that. And the reason that God takes this sin so seriously is not that he's a bully, not that he's a killjoy, it's not that he doesn't want his creatures to have fun. It's, he takes it seriously because he sees how destructive sin is to the world, to our, our family, to our, our, our own lives, to our marriage. He takes it seriously because he has a better plan in mind for what humans are to be and what they're to experience, and he has an ultimate plan of dealing with sin in the end and redeeming us from this sinful world. But let me be really clear, at the risk of being arrested for hate speech, the scriptures are quite clear that homosexuality is a sin. And not the worst sin, but like all sin, it is a sin that destroys. And yet, like all sin, it is a sin that can be repented of, forgiven, and healed. Many Christians have been and still are. Remember, Paul is writing this book to the Romans from Corinth, which was the capital of immorality in the world, the most sinful, lustful culture the world has ever known. Many of those Corinthian Christians had been saved out of that culture, out of those sins, from those particular things, just like many are today. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, um, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterer, nor men who practice homosexuality, 
nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We think by rejecting God, we're living in freedom. We're living our own lives. We're free of his judgmentalism and his oppression. Reality, we're just riding the tiger. What an accomplishment. You're in control. Or are you? Is there a way off? Let's pray. We don't want to be afraid, Father, to call a spade a spade, to recognize sin as sin. We don't want to be shaped by our culture, which is demanding from us an attitude quite different than what your word declares to us. We as your sons and your daughters, we as Christians, we as the bride of Christ, we as people of the book, embrace truth from your word and not from our feelings and not from our culture. And I pray, God, that you challenge the way we think. I pray that you change the way we think. I pray that you make us strong to believe your word, strong to resist the flow of culture. And I ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.